There's no secret sauce of marketing that is going to grow a gym. Like gyms grow to me, and I, I, I bet you agree, by word of mouth, by providing a good consistent service year after year after year. That's how gyms grow. You don't just open the door and have 200 members. All right, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Business of Fitness Podcast. I'm Jason Kleep, and on today's episode, we have Juliet Starrett. Before we get into the episode, just want to make sure everybody knows then on Thursday at Wadapalooza in January, we're going to be hosting a special NC Fit Collective event. If you haven't checked it out, make sure you check out NC Fit underscore collective on Instagram and follow along as we dive into our coaching, dive into our culture and all different types of things on that Thursday. Today's episode is, is excellent. We talked to Juliet about how she was a lawyer turned gym owner how they've developed multiple businesses, how they have trainers making six-figure incomes from personal training in particular, how she's raised rates in the past, what's worked and what hasn't worked. And finally, one of the most important subjects that I think we dove into, which I really liked, was is everybody set out to be a gym owner? Is everybody made to be an entrepreneur? Or is there potentially a way that they could find success by being a number two and utilizing their skills? I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I did. And as always, have a great day. All right, guys, here with Juliet Starrett at San Francisco. CrossFit is a beautiful day. We are just hanging out, catching up on a number of things. How's your day been so far? It's been good other than that I am always cold here. But other than that, it's good. <laughs> so right now we're inside the gym and we got our uh, Patagonia and North Face jackets on. So I want to dive into some business. You know, we came together and we've talked many of times. And I think you're a fascinating, fascinating person who's gone through a lot of life experiences. And one of the ones that is most fascinating to me is how you went through law school, went through all that hard work, spent all that money, right? <laughs> you know, got a job making a great salary at a law firm, yep. right? Becoming partner or no? Oh yeah. I was like a year away from becoming partner. You're like a year away from becoming partner. And then all of a sudden you're like, you know what? Yeah. I don't know about this whole law thing. I'm going to go open up a gym with my husband who <laughs> just graduated from PT school. So can you tell me, can we kind of back up to I think there's a lot of owners out there or potential owners, and I hear it all the time, who they love fitness, they're interested in it, they maybe don't like their day job as much, and they want to make that shift. What was that process like for you, and what was like the defining moment where you decided, hey, I'm going to go all in or nothing? Sure. So I will tell you, it was a long process. It it was not just, there actually wasn't just like an aha moment where I was like, peace out, I'm out of here. So I actually graduated from law school in 2003. And Kelly and I opened San Francisco CrossFit in 2005. Kelly was still in PT school and we had a six month old baby. So we obviously were having like a few of some kind. On. Yeah, we had yeah. a few things going on. But we really fell in love with doing CrossFit and there was no other CrossFit in San Francisco. We honestly didn't really start the gym um, to be like a money-making business. You know, Kelly soon graduated from PT school, got a regular day job. I was working as a lawyer. Um, it was totally a side gig for us at the beginning. Um, and so Kelly would coach classes and I would run like the minor business side. You know, we were kind of growing up to like 50, 75, 100 members. But at that point, it was still, uh, there, there was uh, there was still space for me to be able to practice law full time and kind of like come home at night and answer all the emails around the business and tweak the website and do all the basic stuff. Um, in 2008, after working for two years, Kelly actually decided to leave his PT practice and bring it in-house in the gym. Well, and well, <laughs> I, 
think it's unfair to call it a, in the gym was an interesting yeah, statement. Yeah, because, yeah, so uh, at this point, we're still in the parking lot outside, <laughs> which has become like the stuff of legend. And uh, in order to run his PT practice at the gym, he literally rented this little container that he, it was a heated container that was lovingly called the pain box. Oh, or, yeah. Do you remember that? Oh, I think you were I probably, pain, a, I've, you I've were in the, the pain, pain box. box. Yeah. And, um, and that definitely was a painful place. So he started running his PT practice there. We had just started Mobility Wad. We were just, Kelly had just started teaching his first CrossFit movement and mobility course. So we were starting to have this little side income. And it was probably in 2008 where I started thinking, okay, first of all, I, I am, am a mortal human. The gym had started growing to the point where it was like a business at this point. It yeah. was not a hobby. It was definitely a business. And I'm like, okay, I am a mortal human. I'm actually not sure I can bill 60 to 70 hours a week at a big fancy law firm and run a business on the side, which is what I was doing. So, you know, part of it was just, you know, the the discussion around my leaving my practice was part of it was like, okay, we either need to hire a manager or someone to do this, or I need to leave my practice. And then the, the other thing that was going on for me in my mind was... I, I didn't mind practicing law. I liked it. I actually like lawyers. I think they're like funny and smart. And I made some really great friends at my law firm and I was like on track to become partner and, you know, make whatever you make as a partner, a million dollars a year or whatever, you know, I was on track yeah. to do all that. Yeah. But, but the, the one aha moment I had is at this point, I think I'm like 37 years old and I look forward in time at all the lawyers at my firm who were like in their fifties and when I sort of took stock of what I was seeing, people really weren't happy. You know, they were divorced. They didn't see their kids. Uh, there was a lot of drinking and drugs or people were overweight or didn't have time to exercise. I mean, there were just, you could see by the time people had reached their 50s in that career, yeah. like the literal physical- a little weathered. Weathered <laughs> impact on working a job like that. I mean, it is super stressful. It's really high stakes. You know, the hours alone, like now I think it's comical because I'm around like entrepreneurs and coaches who think they work really hard and I'm always like yeah no so you were yeah no you were putting in all these hours yeah the gym was growing you're in a parking lot which yes which I want to backtrack to how the parking <laughs> lot created yeah. but before we even start that conversation I want to finish this one how did you know so you looked at these other people when did you know that it was time to shift from what you're doing to what, when, when was it just too much? Did there, you yeah. I mean, honestly, that was the moment. So I really started thinking about it hard in 2008. It took me almost two years to sort of get over the hump. And during those two years, the gym continued to grow. Like we went from 75 members to 150 members, which all of a sudden is like, you need a legitimate, <laughs> real you revenue. know, yeah, real revenue. We actually had like mind body by this point. We weren't just taking checks and cash. Like it was a legitimate business that was taking a ton of my time outside of the law from practice. So it took me sort of two years to realize like something's got to give in my personal, like my, just in terms of the hours I have as a human being. And then two, I really was sort of like falling out of love with this law practice and realizing that like, I looked forward in time and I was like, I don't want that to be me. Like yeah. I don't, there literally wasn't a single person where I was like, wow, I wish I was like that guy or that woman. Like I didn't see it for myself. And then by that point, you know, the gym was making a little bit of revenue. And we were teaching, Kelly was teaching a few courses in mobility wads. So just, I'm also a super practical person. So just from a financial standpoint, we started to feel like, okay, we can do this. Like we can, you know, we didn't own a house at that point. We could definitely pay our rent, pay our bills, pay for our childcare and like, we'll be okay. Right. Um, and I always felt like I have 
we have these fallbacks. Yep. You know, I could check out of the law practice for five years and easily go back in five years and get a high paying lawyer job. Kelly had a fallback of like, he could easily go out anywhere and get a physical therapy job. So for us, as you know, like everyone says, you take on all this risk as an entrepreneur and you certainly do, but we definitely felt like that was somewhat tempered by the fact that we had fallbacks. And we grew so slowly, you know, I mean, Kelly, Kelly had a, either was in school or had a job for the first three years of San Francisco CrossFit. And for the first five years of San Francisco CrossFit, I had a full-time job, right? So, so that gave us, um, I, by the way, I'm not sure that that's possible in today's well, environment. To yeah. So what do you think about that? I mean, you're talking about how you have this fallback plan, which is because of your hard work, right? You were educated. And one of the things that really struck me that you said to me a while ago, it just, it really resonated with me. You're like, I was 36 years old when we pivoted to a full-time gym owner. And I said to myself, and someone said to you that even if you go there for five years, you come back and you're, let's just say 42, you still have another 20 years yeah. in the industry to work. And yeah. that was really kind of cool to think about that. Yeah, that's what they, they literally, it was actually a, a woman partner who I was speaking with about my leaving. And she said, hey, look, you know, you're 36. You could check out and go run businesses till you're 45. And then you could still practice law for another 20 years if that's if that's what happens and I have to say that that was very calming for me because I you know I am a more of a practical person and I you know there's certainly by that point I was making a lot of money and it was very secure Um, and so I really think her saying that was part of like the process of me thinking like this is gonna be okay right I can do this because you have all those years and and so you know nowadays I don't know if someone can go all, uh, not go all in, right? I, I don't know if that's possible. So in your experience, and again, this was 10 years ago plus, you were able to kind of have, you know, Kelly was doing his thing, you were doing your thing, and you had this gym in the parking lot of a sports basement, right? Yep. Which is a which is an athletic store. And, you know, which is a kind of an anomaly, right? It's kind of a unique experience, <laughs> right? I mean, I've never heard of it happening yeah. before. But looking at the industry today, what advice would you have for someone who's in a job they don't like, and they want to start a gym, what would that be? Like, first thing, what, what would that be? Well, to me, it seems like these days you have a couple of options. I do still think you can start smaller, maybe not as small as we started, which was like three barbells and some weights and five clients. Like, I do think you can start smaller and try to reduce your overhead and maybe even just keep your day job like part-time. Yep. Um, even 20 hours a week just to have that 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 small amount of security so everything you're doing isn't panicked. Like, I got to grow, I got to grow. Because, you know, growing a gym from zero to whatever – it takes time. To me, there's no secret sauce of Facebook marketing or Instagram ads or YouTube ads or pixels that you put everywhere. Like, there's no secret sauce of marketing that is going to grow a gym. Like, gyms grow to me, and I, I, I bet you agree, yeah. by word of mouth, by providing a good consistent service year after year after year that's how gyms grow you don't just open the door and have 200 members um good stable growth meaning you could do these these you know pay for you know you put ten thousand dollars in a facebook ads you might get a hundred members to come in the door but how well do you retain them are they really part of your community are they just deal shoppers right 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 right, right. it's like it's like a groupon thing so i think that having a side job if you can do it as a new gym owner just gives you a little bit of financial security so that you don't feel so panicked about having to like do a groupon so you get this many people in the gym or you know always trying to develop these programs you can actually really just grow organically which is by you know 
being consistent, having great coaching, you know, good facilities, like it's all the consistent stuff, like setting up systems so that people feel cared for and know how to cancel their membership and know, you know, just all that kind of system stuff so that you have a little security, um, you know, but I also see a lot of gym owners now, you know, actually taking on like a significant amount of investment and just going all in. Um, and I feel really mixed about that. I mean, I do feel like owning a gym is a bit like owning a restaurant. Yep. You know, it is not a high margin business, especially if you're not in a city. That's right. You know, I mean, if, you know, maybe, and maybe there's some sweet spot where you're like in a midsize city where the commercial rent is still cheap enough, but it's a, it's a slow, it's a tight margin business. Yeah. And, and the, and the barrier to entry is relatively low compared to like a conventional gym that needs millions of dollars. But the learning curve is high, we talk about. And I think, in my perspective, for anybody who's thinking about starting a business, I think it's really important that they they open it with um, good confidence that they have enough education to be successful. So leading up to this, you know, when you guys made the jump from in the parking lot to your location here where I'm at right now, which is in the Presidio, San Francisco, you overlooked the Golden Gate. It's absolutely gorgeous here. What made you feel confident making the jump from rent that I imagine was almost nothing, yep. right, to, you know, I don't know, quite a, quite a bit. And <laughs> what, what was it that made you feel comfortable? And then how do you relate that to a new gym owner who's never opened up a business? What, right. what could they do to gain the confidence to feel like when they do open their doors, they're going to be successful? Yeah. I mean, I will say that when we moved out of the parking lot and into this physical space we're in, we had about 250 members already by that point. So we had a decent revenue, although our membership prices were way low because, you know, compared to other gyms in the city because our overhead was so low. So one of the things we had to do, which was painful for me because we had so many long-term members, is we had to bump our membership rates up by almost $75 a month per person. You know, usually you can do these little incremental increases. 3%, 3% just cost of living, but we had to really communicate very clearly with our members, say, hey, here's the deal. Like we've been in a very low rent situation in the parking lot for years, which is why we've been able to keep our membership prices so low. In order to make this happen, we have to bump them up. So I mean, that was a given. Like we, in order to make this work, we had to bump our membership up to like, to what was sort of industry standard in San Francisco at that well, point. Well, let's, let's, let's pause for a second. Cause I think this is a really, really great topic. We hear it all the time from gym owners. When do I raise my rate? How do I do it? How, so I'd like to learn from you. So you went from one location to the next. Obviously it's black and white. You're in a parking lot. Now you're in a nice facility with showers, et cetera. But some people don't see it that way, right? They don't, they don't, they don't kind of think about it as a business owner. They think about it more like, oh, this person is trying to get more money from me. So right. how did you, how did you um, communicate it and what could you have done to make it even better if you, if you had to say? Well, you know, I've had an interesting experience because I've done rate increases by both communicating and not. And I, and, um, and I'll tell you that. So when <laughs> we did, um, well, I'll tell you, so we did the big in, when we did the big jump from, I think we went from $150 a month to $225 a month. And even that was below market, $225. But I felt that $75 a month was like the most I could ask of people. Um, and we wrote a really personal, really careful letter to people to let people know why, what to expect, why we were doing it, what they were going to get in exchange. You know, they weren't going to need to do burpees in like a pile of glass near a dumpster yeah, anymore. Yeah, if it was raining you know, outside, they right, didn't have to, yeah. Right. We, we, so we really, I think, I, and I am sure I actually have that letter. 
letter somewhere and I think I, sp- I spent a ton of time like lawyering that letter hard and making it like a perfect work of art. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we only had a, f- I- I'll be honest, we, I think we did a good job. We only had a few complaints. I think people were really excited about feeling like, okay, you know, the parking lot was a, such a unique thing. It could never happen today. I mean, I think the only reason it worked is because we opened it at a time when CrossFit was also pretty much brand new. Yeah. And it was like, we were part of that emergent phenomenon that was CrossFit that felt like you were part of something that was new and growing and different. Um, I don't think it would work today at all. No, I don't think so. Just either. to begin with. So so I think it just happened to work at a unique time. Um, so I think our members took the, the rate increase pretty well. I think we only got a few complaints. Um, then the following year, because, you know, our rent, we're, the way our lease is, it goes up every year. Yep. And Same so do ours. our expenses. In general, what, are so, you guys at 3%? I think it's 3%. Yep. So, you know, the following year, we increased it again. I want to say five or 10 bucks a month. Okay. And and we sent out another letter saying, hey, look, we're still below market. We are. We need to slowly increase our rates year by year. Um, if you bought a membership on December 1st at our old rate, you're grandfathered in until next December 1st. You know, we, we leave, you know, if people are on an auto pay, they get to keep their rate based on when they started. So- We've tried to do that. When I sent out that letter, I actually got way more. I think it was a $5 increase from $225 to $230. I got way more complaints about that than I did about that huge increase because I think it was such an obvious ad when they went from the parking lot to here. But then somehow that $5 increase really bothered people. So um, here's what we've been doing lately. We actually do a 3% membership increase on all our memberships every year on January 1st and we don't say anything. Oh my gosh. Because okay. the reason I, I have the, to dive into this with you. The okay, reason we don't mention it, if people ask, we tell them, yeah. hey, our rent goes up by 3% a year and so we pass that along through our membership prices. It's the only way for us to stay here and stay a profitable business. Yes. And people accept that. But what's interesting is Every time we've sent an email, so I think we did it for two years. We did it when we went from 225 to 230, 230 to 235. We sent emails or, you know, messages to our members about both those, and we got a ton of complaints. So then the following year, I said, well, we're just inviting complaint by telling everyone we're doing this. So the following year, we just bumped it up again from 235 to 240, and not a single person said anything. And so I thought, well, I'm not trying to be sneaky here, but I'm also like- Not trying to draw attention to it. Yeah. If you draw attention to it by sending this whole letter about this great service we offer and how great we are and how much we value them, then that gets people thinking in a way that we found was actually not that awesome for us. So here's the deal. If I did anything more than like a five, usually the 3% comes to literally like $5 a month. Yeah, 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 yeah. If I did anything more than that, a membership change of anything more than like the basically 3%, I would send out an email. But now I'm like, you know what? My hairdresser ups her rate every year and she doesn't have a formal conversation with me. When I hand her my credit card, if it's 2018 versus 2017, it's $5 or $10 more than it was last year. And I don't say anything and she doesn't say anything to me. And it's just like, it is, is what it is. So I have no idea, by the way, if this is the right way to do it. Yeah. But we have eliminated complaints well, it, about it. This is really great timing for me. Yeah. Because in January for the first time, we have placed into our contracts. And I assume you did as well. So for any gym owner listening... I assume in your contract, it, it states that you are eligible to increase rates by 3%. Is that correct? Yes. It says, I can't remember the exact language, but yes, it says something about so that. So in our contracts that we had all of our members um, sign, uh, we, we instilled this a couple of years ago, is a 3% 
um, increase that we're able to do, right? And we are about to execute on it for the first time in January. And we're going to do 3% across the board, whether you started with us 10 years ago or now, it'll be um, relative based on when you enrolled. So if you signed up with us 10 years ago and you're at 150 bucks and you signed up with us a year ago and you're at $200, it's, it's based on when you signed up. So everybody's even playing field 3%. But we've been really debating about should we draw attention to this or should we just kind of like, you know, place it as something where everybody just kind of understands on an annual basis cost of living increases. Very, very interesting. I really appreciate you touching that subject. Yeah. I mean, we've tried both. And, you know, I think if you're doing more than a 3%, if it's like, you know, impacting people more than 10 or 20 bucks a month, like you should probably say something and really explain why you're doing it. You know, we've invested in this equipment or we're doing this or we need to do this or our expenses have gone up like this. But I think for just a little cost of living increase, like not sure it's worth inviting the emails and managing that you know very very yeah. very, so, very very interesting topic and i yeah just want to caveat that by saying look um i'm surely not a lawyer uh, juliet has gone to you know is it but but um just make sure that in your agreements and everything there's there's we're not yeah. we're not you know i mean I yeah i mean you just yeah you, you want to set yeah you want to make sure you've set it up so that you actually can, can do, do that. this right yes yeah exactly <laughs> and uh and you know let me know how it goes i mean i'm curious to figure to hear what you decide as well I know. and either way how it goes you know what kind of feedback or whatever you get i love um, it because i do think you know it's uh, there's there's this weird thing with crossfit gyms that happen where somehow because it's a community and we all know each other and we're sort of all friends that somehow people feel different about the financial part of the relationship, right? Like I, like I said with my hairdresser, like she ups her rate by 3% or $5 every year. We don't talk about it. I don't think about it. I, I don't, I'm always like, oh yeah, you know, it's more yeah. expensive to do business every single year for her. And you want her to run a successful business yeah, and your membership right. too. I just think right. money was such a awkward thing for so long across it. But at the end of the day, you're seeing gyms going out of business because they're not thinking about the money. Right. And so then you're actually doing your, your members a disservice because you can't have a place to work out. No, right. right. Like, yeah, like we, yeah, like there has to be a fine balance between, you know, like we really try to, to care about and appreciate how expensive it is to live in San Francisco, how, what we are offering is expensive to make sure that what the value that they get is worth it. Like we go out of our way to do all those things, but also, you know, we're trying to run a profitable business. This is not a nonprofit. That's, 100%. 100%. Yeah. You're taking on a lot of risk and liability, and a lot of gym owners are as well. So let's talk about that. You went from the parking garage, uh, parking lot, which I loved, by yeah, the way. it was amazing. To this location we're in today. And your model is a little bit different. So our model at NC Fit, we don't really focus on personal training. Um, our model is that if an instructor would like to do personal training, they could keep all the money as long as the person they're training is a member of our gym or pays a drop in for that session. Now, now your model is different and you've actually generated quite a bit of revenue off personal training. So I'd love to talk about what do you do and why do you think it's been successful? And do you think it's an anomaly because you're in San Francisco in, or do you think it can be replicated elsewhere in the world? Can you tell me more about your personal yeah, training? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I'll tell you about it. So the way it works at San Francisco CrossFit is we, um, we obviously have, you know, most of our revenue still comes from memberships and those people go, you know, have access to classes and go to classes. Sure. But we also have a really thriving personal training business and there's literally not an hour of any day of the week where you come in to the gym and it's quiet. There's always 
people working one-on-one with coaches at all times of the day and night. Yeah, I think right During now classes, there might be like three going yeah, on. Yeah, we're at a, like a totally off time. And then, you know, our coaches have also set up these little small groups. Like we have this, like for example, we have in the Presidio, there's a couple like investment banking firms that guys who work like market hours. Yep. And they want to work out, but they want to work out at kind of off times when it wouldn't make sense for us to have a class. So they've set up these little small group personal training sessions where there'll be, you know, two or three guys who come at like three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, so we have a real mix of that. Now, I'd like to say that this was like a planned thing and a genius idea we had at the beginning in that Kelly and I thought it through and thought, oh, we want to do this sort of hybrid class personal training model. We didn't really, but for whatever reason, we started with that from the beginning. And I think part of it was that Kelly was always seeing one-on-one physical therapy clients. Um, And then, you know, physical therapy clients usually need to graduate into one-on-one coaching. They're not usually ready to go into group classes. So I think that was a pathway. So Kelly, that was a pathway where we, you know, Kelly started feeding clients to our coaches saying, okay, well, this guy doesn't need to see me as a physical therapist anymore, but he's really not ready to jump into a CrossFit class. So we started feeding Kelly's, you know, graduated PT clients into one-on-one coaching. And then we also really started, we definitely set it up as a value at the beginning. When we meet with our new members, even in our intros, when they come in at the very beginning, we say, look, if you have a 10-year CrossFit journey, it's going to include a variety of things. And one of those things might be like taking some time out from classes to do some personal training or adding in some personal training to get some really focused work on a skill that you're not getting in class. Like you're here for five years and you just can't get butterfly pull-ups and you're dying because the guy next to you has them. You know, it might mean that you need to come in for an hour of one-on-one coaching to work on that specific skill. Um, So we've always kind of set it up as a value. And then it's worked so well for us because we, we keep a small percentage for the gym of every private training client. The coach keeps the vast majority of it. And do you mind sharing? With no, what, it's 70. What, we do 70, 30. And ha, do you think that's the right number? Do you think potentially I would, the gym's a little bit more generous? I would do 50, 50 if I had it to do over again. If you had, but once yes. you give it, it's hard to take it back. You can't take it back. So that's why I would say like go 50, 50 if you go, if you decide to go with this model. But the thing, just let me add a couple yeah, things. Ahead, I think yeah. the reason that it's been so awesome for us is that, and you and I have talked about this, we have quite a few coaches here able able to literally make six figures working as a coach because they're able to, we also let them choose what to charge for private training, mm. which is another thing that's unique about what we do. You know, most, most gyms have, okay, if you do private training, it's 85 or 95 or hundred, but we let them choose. And that's part of how they discuss it with their clients. And a lot of it is based on experience. So if you come see Roop, it's going to be 150 bucks an hour because Roop is a boss and a physical therapist, yeah. right? So, um, you know, if you see some of our younger coaches, it could be $85 an hour. And we definitely try to place people when they're coming in for private training we try to place them with the right coach at a rate that they can afford to pay so we're, we're careful about how we curate that but we've been able to create an environment where our coaches can make a real living in a city like the most expensive city on earth which is important and I think that's part of the reason why we've had so little turnover here I mean yeah. you know from coming here forever like we obviously always have some new coaches around the periphery but like our core coaches are the same that they've been for like almost 10 years your attention has been incredible and i think generating you know great salaries for your coaches is, is critical right yeah. and i want to i want to dive into two specific topics number one is do you think if you're going to ask for 50 50 then you should have more responsibility to sell that training for them right mm-hmm. versus them getting it themselves so right now at 70 30 
How much of that is you driving traffic to Coach A versus them getting it themselves? 100% is us. 100% Our coaches do zero marketing. They are not out there pounding the pavement and trying to get new clients. Um, you know, the way that we do our, what we do, the way you come into the gym is everybody has to do like a three-session intro series, one-on-one. Um, which is how a lot of, like an on-ramp, a yep, three-session yep, yep, yep. on-ramp. And we actually give our coaches permission to steer certain people out of classes and into private training. Um, and But they all come in through word of mouth, through friends, through, you know, our coaches are not doing a lick of marketing. It's all coming in because of word of mouth through the gym or because they've transferred from over from being members of the gym and they want to do a period of private training. I mean, they're all coming in like through those methods, right. not because our coaches are out there pounding the pavement. Right. So, not so, at all. So that's really interesting to me. Um, so with the, with the salaries, how do you blend a coach who maybe just wants to come here and just train clients, doesn't want to coach any classes for you, just wants to do PT and collect 70% of the revenue is there a requirement to how many classes they have to coach? And do you think there should be? Yes. So that's another. So we now have a requirement that you have to coach three classes because this is another way that we've shot ourselves in the foot is it's so lucrative for our coaches to coach uh, private clients that it's sometimes like, you know, that they if they have a trade-off, like, wow, I could coach this class for 40 bucks or I could co- I could get for this 80. 80. You know, it's uh, there's just no question for them, right? So we did finally implement a three-class requirement um, for that reason because – so you're so now we have – nobody's allowed to work here and just do private training. you Everybody's got to participate in the class model. And we basically feel like that's sort of their, like, pay-to-play model. Like, look, yep. you – in order to, like – be part of the bigger thing, you have to coach some classes and they all do. And, you know, I actually don't think they mind it in, in part because it is such a different, you know, coaching experience than one-on-one that I think it's sort of, you know, it's hard. I mean, a lot of my coaches who make six figures, they're in here like 10 hours a day seeing one-on-one clients, one-on-one. And so sometimes a class is like a nice diversion actually hundred percent from that schedule. So, I mean, Roop, how many hours, how many hours a month, how many hours a week? I mean, he takes at least 35 to 40 hours a week of one-on-one clients. Yeah. That's a lot. And one thing I will add that has been a giant revenue stream for us, and again, I don't know if it's unique, although I do think it's, I, I do think other gyms could replicate our model, by the way, generally speaking. Um, I think that there is a desire and a need, and certain people are just not, certain people in the world are not group class people. They're never going to be. And I think creating a pathway for them to have a one-on-one experience is great. So I do, I think it's totally like, replicatable and then and it would be easier to begin it though when you open a crossfit and have that be i think it'd be harder to take a gym like nc fit and be like we're switching into this personal training i feel like it would be harder for you to do that now than if this had been like your culture from the beginning um but the other thing i'll say that has been very lucrative for us is having a bunch of in-house physical therapists um because these guys you know roop and sean here and then when kelly was still seeing physical therapy clients it is a huge revenue stream for our gym um because everybody is injured everybody i mean i don't know how many members (coughs) of your gym are injured but i mean we have and and the amount of people that call us and they're injured and they want to get back to whatever sport it is and then somehow san francisco crossfit has been known beyond the crossfit world so if you're a triathlon person or you peloton at home or do spinning or whatever somehow 
word of mouth has gotten out in the community that even if you don't ever do CrossFit, have no plan of ever doing a CrossFit, but you want to see a physical therapist who can help get you back to whatever sport it is you're doing, yeah. someone at San Francisco CrossFit can help well, you. That's big. Let me ask you about that. So San Francisco CrossFit, I do think it's a little bit of an anomaly because yeah. of what Kelly's done, what you've done. Yeah. However, if a gym in Ohio wanted to integrate with a physical therapist, what you're saying is a potential revenue stream is, hey, PT John, you know, you could work out of our gym, right? We will refer clients to you. Yeah. And we will collect, you know, 30 a percentage. Revenue. Yeah. Very, very interesting. So that's another additional I think, revenue. And stream. I think that's that alone would work. And I also think even better is an integrated PT who both coaches and does PT. Because that's what's so unique about Sean and Roop and Kelly as well, is they can relate to the athletic yeah. experience and they can and you know, because what a lot of people actually need is they think they need PT, but they need this sort of hybrid thing, which is right, like if you go, we've got a great physical therapy clinic next door to us, Presidio Sport and Med. These guys are awesome. Like if you go have an AC repair like we punt people over there like if you're in an acute PT phase where you really need like acute post-surgical rehab kind of stuff yeah. they're excellent for that but what's missing in the physical therapy world is this bridge between when you're no longer in an acute injury phase you have a nagging pain or injury that doesn't require surgery you haven't been able to fix it yourself by following mobility water whatever it is you're doing um but you are you want to do whatever sport it is, whether that's CrossFit or triathlons or whatever. Um, there's a huge group of people in the world, and I don't think it's unique to San Francisco, no. where these people need a period of one-on-one -on -one coaching to be able to revise their mechanics. You know, a lot of this stuff is mechanical. People are just moving like shit. They injure themselves in whatever sport it is. They need a coach who actually understands movement and can retrain you how to move. And usually that means you're getting out of pain as well and learning how to move better and, you know, reducing your chances of injury in the future. So I think this is a big market, this sort of hybrid huh. coach PT person. So I think it could be a good revenue stream for a gym. Well, I think that's very interesting. So, you know, you've touched base on how you've kind of pivoted when you, from, from being in a professional, you know, lawyer to it. And, and then you open the gym and now over the years, you've talked about different revenue streams. You obviously approach this in a business mindset. Um, for any gym owner who's kind of looking to go into a business, what couple things do you think they could look at before they open from a financial perspective to maybe help them? Um, like for, have you guys taken on outside funding? No, no outside and, funding. And yeah. it's all you, bootstrapped. Would you have taken on outside funding if you needed to? Um, what financial, what, what metrics are you really looking at on a regular well, basis that kind of help guide you in the gym in particular? Not so much mobility wall, which we could talk about. Yeah, no, I mean, no, we've never taken outside funding. Um, we've bootstrapped the whole thing. Again, I think because of when we started, it was pretty unique. It might be different today where we'd yeah. open the gym today, so I can't speak to that. But because we were able to grow so slowly and so organically, in part because Kelly and I had other jobs, that it was never a question about whether we needed to take other money. You know, by the time we took on this big rent and this big overhead situation, we were already a very profitable gym. Um, in fact, our profitability went down when right. we moved into this space, right, but, but, um, but it went to like a normal level as opposed to, you know, like a pretty wide, wide profit margin earlier. So, um, so no, I don't think we take out money. I think, uh, I think, I, and we talked about this. I think I mentioned this at the event we went to at NC fit. I think the thing that new gym owners don't think about enough. And because I, what I see often is that the people who are opening gyms are opening them because they've been coaching and they think, oh, well, you know, I don't just want to coach forever. Like I want to move on to the next thing. I kind of want to have a trajectory. So I'm going to open a gym. And I think that's all well and good, but I think 
Self-awareness is really important when you're running a business. And what I mean by that is, are you good at what you need to be good at to run a business? And if not, can you afford to hire someone to do it? Because Kelly and I have had this really great situation where like he's an exceptional coach and I'm really good at sort of organizational tasks and running businesses and that's how, how my mind works. But that's not always the case, right? If you're going into a partnership, it's two coaches. Well, you maybe didn't become a coach because you have, because like you're inclined to making spreadsheets. Right. You probably became a coach because you're disinclined to making spreadsheets. Um, so I think that's fine. I think coaches can be very successful running gyms as long as they're super aware of what they're not good at from an administrative standpoint and they hire those positions like sooner rather than later. Yeah. Because, you know, a gym is not going to succeed if you don't if you're not responsive and respond to customer issues and inquiries and complaints. Like if you can't respond to email in a timely fashion, you need to have someone doing that for you. If you don't have someone who can set up systems and write employee manuals and figure out how you're going to manage your payroll and your HR, like all of these things to, you know, for, for me, I nerd out on it and I think yeah. it's really fun. And I of think course. you do as yeah. well. Um, but that everybody it, doesn't do that. It throws a lot of guys off or yeah. and guys, yeah. girls, girls people. yeah, people. But I, so I think for me, a real self-awareness is, I mean, I, I, this may sound weird to say, but I think if you are lacking in self-awareness as you start a business, like you're doomed because you don't need to be good at everything. That's not a prerequisite for running a business, but you need to know what you're not good at and be acutely aware of that. So you can hire the right people. I mean, you've done such a great, like you have always had such a great team of people around you who've been with you forever as well, I will add. I mean, you have this, like um, like the people around you who are helping you, like you have such a great self-awareness about where you have holes in your own skill set and where you need to fill that. <laughs> well, I mean, thank you. I'm a terrible manager. I'm working on that. But I think, I think that's a really, really great point to make for any gym owner who's looking to get into the business is take a self-evaluation. Think hard. You know, hey, what am I good at? What do I like to do? What do I not like to do? And if you can't do something, you need to either delegate it out or if it becomes a point where it's so, so big, maybe you're in the wrong business. You know, right. if, if or maybe you don't need to open up a business because maybe that's not what you're actually looking for. Maybe you need to identify a career. You know, we talk about it a lot. If you're the number two, number three guy at a, you know, a company like Facebook, whatever, you're still probably, you, maybe you didn't have the skill set or the desire right. to be the owner or whatever, but maybe you have a ton of other skills. You can add a ton of value to other companies for yeah. And gyms in particular. Well, I was just saying someone to the, this is like a thing of like a thing I'm tweaked on lately, but I think we have fetishized entrepreneurship in yeah. our culture these days. And I really think we've done a disservice to people because I really believe that only like five to 10% of people are actually really appropriate to be entrepreneurs in terms of the mindset and the risk taking and some of the things that are involved with being a true entrepreneur. I don't think it's really for everybody. And I feel like it causes a lot of people angst because there's a lot of people who would, like I think there is, and I've read that you actually have, you feel as good about yourself doing a job if you do a good job at it. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that well, but like people get equal fulfillment if they work hard and do a good job at their job, even if they're working for someone else, they get equal fulfillment as someone who's running their own business. Right. So I think we've undervalued this idea that you can be really good at something working for somebody else and also feel fulfilled as a human. Huh. Um, 
Yeah, and, that's nice. That's really powerful. And if we also really need people. Like, we need people to not be the boss. We need people to be, like, okay being the crushing number two guy. And and in a way, there's so many value. You know, you can still make money and be really successful and take on no risk. I mean, there's also a real beauty in that as well. So I think we've really fetishized it. Like, it's not, it's not great what we've done because I think everybody thinks – that they should be an entrepreneur. Um, and there's all these tests you can take actually online now. There's like the Colby assessment and the Myers-Briggs test. And I think if like someone's listening to this and they're wondering like, am I appropriate to be an entrepreneur? Man, go take all those tests because they're really well done. In fact, like lately I've been thinking that I'm actually going to give the Colby assessment to every new person I hire because you can learn so much about what their real skill set is. And whether you're hiring them into the right position based on their skill set. So I would go take all those tests myself if I were just starting this out to be like, what are my skill sets? And actually, do I have the right like mindset and skill set to be an entrepreneur? I would do that before I opened a gym if I were a new potential gym owner. That's 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 great. I agree 100 percent. Well, Julia, I could talk to you about business for hours and hours and hours. I think we've touched base on a lot of really great stuff today. For people who are interested, oh, that was a big wait. For people who are interested <laughs> in uh, finding out more about San Francisco CrossFit, but also, you know, San Francisco CrossFit is a piece to your overarching business. On another day, I'd like to sit down with you and Kelly and uh, talk about uh, MWOD, Mobility WOD, yes. which is pivoting in the future. Yes. I'm excited for what that process is going to look like. Um, but you also have an online business. So can you tell some people about where people could find you, what services you provide um, if they want to know more? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we're obviously at San Francisco CrossFit.com, MobilityWad.com, um, at MobilityWad on all the social medias. I'm at Juliet Starrett on Instagram. And, you know, we're just, we're just always chipping away here. So, and what's, what's Mobility Wad, just for people who don't know? Uh, Mobility Wad is a website that has daily uh, video content on movement, mechanics, injury prevention. All our videos are follow along. We have an app. Um, it's called the Daily MWAD app, and you can follow along on 10, you know, every day there's two brand new 10 to 15 minute follow along movement mechanics mobility videos. Love it. Well, Juliet, I, uh, I'm excited to walk around the gym, throw down with some people, and I uh, hope you have a great day. Thanks for having me, Jason. Thank you. 